This program is part of Film Geek Radio. Visit filmgeekradio.com for more great shows. Hey Gumshoes, welcome to episode number 16 of Detect This here on Film Geek Radio. This is our podcast devoted exclusively to the HBO series True Detective. I'm Andrew Johnson and I'm joined by my fellow detective, Charlie Nash. Hey Andrew. How you doing, Charlie? Andrew, I have blue balls in my heart. Oh no, I'm, I'm sorry. I don't know what is going to have to be done to fix that. That sounds like a problem. You should probably see a doctor about that. Yeah, I should. This is like, I mean, blue balls in your heart, Andrew. I'm not sure if you've, you're familiar with the phrase. It's basically the worst form of depression <laughs> that you can imagine. <laughs> oh, well, uh, I have some good news for our listeners. Uh, we have a special guest that's going to be joining us later in the show. We are privileged to have Todd Vanderwerf with us today to talk about True Detective. You may have heard of Todd. He is the former TV editor of the AV Club, and he is now the culture editor for Vox.com, which is a pretty cool news website that it's fair, fairly new. It's one of the most popular uh, news outlets on the web, so we're really privileged to have him joining us. We're going to do things a little bit differently today. Before we get on to our main discussion of the episode with Todd, we're going to go ahead and induct our honorary iTunes members, and we are going to go ahead and do feedback. Let's get to some iTunes reviews. Uh, as always, you can email the show at detectthis at filmgeekradio.com or leave us a voicemail by calling 336-793-2509. Also, be sure to subscribe to Detect This on iTunes and Stitcher. If you leave us a positive iTunes review, we will make you an honorary member of the Detect This team. We've got a few honorary members to induct this week. First, we got a review from Unsocial Network, who writes, During Season 1, I looked forward to these two almost as much as I anticipated the episodes themselves. Now, in this train wreck of a season, the only reason I'm still watching it is to keep up with them eviscerating it. Even when I disagree <laughs> with them, they're always entertaining to listen to. Andrew and Charlie are adorable together, and their in-depth discussions are funny, clever, and one of the highlights of my podcasting week. Aww. Thanks, Unsocial Network. You know, I think Unsocial Network should be our honorary marriage counselor. For when, <laughs> for when couples are arguing about whether or not to adopt a child, or if one of the parties involved has a past involving a life of crime, you know, they could use some counseling. Yeah, and maybe uh, if he's lucky, he can get his own uh, sequel to Tyler Perry's Confessions of a Marriage Counselor. <laughs> <laughs> wow. How great would that be? A true detective a season written by Tyler Perry. Oh, God, Andrew. Uh, <laughs> the women would be even more horribly written, and everyone would get AIDS. Sounds like a great season of TV to me. But uh, <laughs> our next review is from... David Does Math, who writes, This is easily one of the top two or three True Detective podcasts. I like the fact that the hosts are clearly film and television enthusiasts that enjoy the show, yet they don't sugarcoat anything when calling attention to its flaws. Thanks, David Does Math. I think we're going to make you our honorary razor specialist. If you have a mustache that needs to be shaved <laughs> off, call David. You know, Andrew, I'm growing out a mustache right now, but I'm not so sure I want to keep it, so... uh I think that's a perfect fit. What do you think, Charlie? Did Colin Farrell get that scar shaving? Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm just going to assume he has that massive scar on his lip because he, he just got it when he was shaving off that mustache. I don't think he was trying to cover it with the mustache. I think that's new. 
I can see that point. All right. We have a review from Holly Carey, 1970, who writes, The hosts are funny, insightful, intelligent, and they are clearly genuine fans. So far, one of the best True Detective podcasts I've heard. Thanks, Holly Carey, 1970. Thank you so much. I think Holly Carey, 1970, should be our honorary plastic surgeon to help out Dr. Pittler, who probably can't do surgery on himself now that he probably needs it. I agree, Andrew. You know, there's so many women that we need to just ship off to random orgies here and there. I mean, I know you, Andrew, you have at least five in your home and you don't know what to do with them. They just, they just, they, <laughs> they don't look good. They're no good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And our final iTunes review is from Joe8K, who writes, Great show. Listening allows me to drop all kinds of smart takes on my friends, colleagues, and most importantly, my wife. Keep it going. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> I'm so glad that we could make you look smart for your wife. I know. <laughs> that might be uh. the best review we've ever gotten. Detect this. Helping marriages since 2014. <laughs> <laughs> I love all of our reviews equally, Andrew, but that is certainly a wonderful one. <laughs> yes, I think uh, Joe 8K is going to be our honorary chair manufacturer. If you need to torture somebody out in the woods and need a chair, call Joe 8K. You know, I, I like torturing people, Andrew, but they need to be comfortable until I get there. I, yes. I think that's a good point. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, that'll wrap it up for our iTunes reviews. Before we bring on Todd, let's move on to our feedback, because I want to make sure that we have a lot of time with Todd just to talk about uh, this episode and True Detective in general. Uh, we only have two emails to go over today. Our first email is from Zach, who writes, I think Ray's arc is closely tied to Frank's. Frank is like a friend who wants to keep Ray in a bad place, but doesn't see it as being a bad thing. To Frank, it's not the criminality that's bad, but the contradictions of that with a legit lifestyle. Ray wants to extricate himself from this whole web of moral corruption if he can, but it seems like the underlying visual and thematic motif of this season is that corruption is an inescapable and ever-present knot. The only way out may be to die, which I suspect is how Ray will go. In short, I think Frank will eventually be confronted with the realities of being a player in Vinci. He's a relatively easy-to-understand criminal who can't make the transition to being the more complicated and insidious agent of corruption that Vinci runs on. Note how Frank is the only character explicitly stated to come from somewhere else, Chicago. Note also how it's been mentioned that Frank's crew doesn't pimp. While the entire Vinci power structure seems to be mired in prostitution and lavish sex parties, I think Frank will eventually go the opposite way of Ray. He will be forced to admit that going legit is a chimera, and the legit people in Vinci are even more morally rotten than he is. I completely agree with this theory, and... Uh... I wish that the show itself was as compelling as this email because I think that this is a great theory and I honestly think that it's very likely that this will end up uh, being the, how the second season ends. I just wish that I gave more of a crap about Frank. Ray has certainly been growing on me, though. Maybe it's mainly because Colin Farrell's performance is terrific and Vince Vaughn's is kind of flat, but I agree. Uh... I find the whole I'm not a gangster angst to be kind of annoying. Mm -hmm. I'm getting really tired of these stories, Andrew, where people who start crime rings and get involved in convoluted underground dealings and whatnot pretend that they're a decent guy. But maybe it's just Vince Vaughn's performance that he's it's just not working for me at this point. I've been trying to be patient with it. But at this point, 
I am kind of realizing a big reason as to why Frank isn't interesting to me is because it does seem that he's struggling. Vince Vaughn has personality, just not the type of personality that I think is appropriate for Pizzolatto's writing. Well, Vince Vaughn's performance is by far the most divisive aspect of the show, I think. Mm -hmm. It seems like you either love it or you hate it. I actually really like Vince Vaughn's performance, and I think that the issues with Frank are entirely due to the writing. Not really Vince Vaughn. I actually think that Vince Vaughn's doing really, really great work. And I do think that this email brings up an interesting point about how Frank is the only character where it's explicitly mentioned that he comes from outside of Vinci. He's from Chicago. That is a very, very good point. Yeah, and I I like that idea of how he's a gangster from Chicago, but he's finding that he can't go legit because there is no legit. If you're legit in Vinci... That just means that you're completely corrupt in a whole other way. So I find that that idea interesting, that maybe there is no such thing as being legit in a place like Vinci, that, that, that you could have a city so corrupt and just so morally sour that one of our quote-unquote heroes is this gangster from Chicago, that he's not, he's not as bad as the, the city officials It's funny that you said he's one of the heroes, too, because I've seen multiple people either say he's the big bad or one of our protagonists. And obviously, Nick Pizzolatto is trying to draw a gray area with his character. And, you know, it's funny. I feel like now that you mentioned it, he is probably the worst written character on the show, too. And like many people know at this point, if they've been listening, I'm not a fan of a majority of Nick Pizzolatto's writing this season. I really wanted to give Vince Vaughn a chance, but every time Vince Vaughn's on screen, I'm bored to tears. Personally, I don't think Frank is the big bad of of this season. I think that the institution as a whole, like Vinci, the, the city of Vinci, that whole power structure, I feel like that's the big bad here. Yeah. And, and yeah, Frank's not a great guy, but he's certainly not as bad in many ways as the people pulling the strings. Absolutely. Um, well, we got one more email from someone who I, I couldn't quite make out their name. I think it's Anna. And Anna writes, I know this is old news by now, but the Isig comment clearly came across to me as a jab at Rachel McAdams' character. An e-cig is the pansy version of a cigarette, and she clearly intends to come off as a hardened cop that doesn't want to show any weakness. Not only is an e-cigarette the less rebellious and badass version of a smoker, it also shows a crack in her persona of being someone who's, who is completely walled off. Smoking an e-cig is a way of showing that she has a vice that she's trying to get rid of, but she can't kick the habit completely, so now she smokes this kind of pansy cigarette. What'd you think of that, Charlie? I mean, I I agree that it was meant as an insult, this whole, I can't believe you're smoking an e-cig. Yeah, I well, I thought it was, at first I thought it was just Nick Pizzolatto trying to be quirky a little bit. Like, oh, she's so, you know, she's in a man's world and she smokes e-cigarettes instead of real cigarettes. Now that we've seen this episode where she's gone back to the real, to smoking real cigarettes, what I got from it was she was trying to quit because I know a lot of people, I'm friends with a lot of people who smoke e-cigarettes, usually in the process of quitting smoking. And now I think that she's smoking real cigarettes. It's a sign that she is in a really dark mental state and does not even care anymore about quitting smoking because she's got all of this other shit going on. I agree. I actually think that that was a, a nice subtle touch in this episode. I do too. Showing, yeah. showing her smoking the real cigarette. I think that's just another sign of how that shootout affected everybody. Like, everybody yes. is, is kind of recovering in their own way, and she has decided to just embrace 
smoking and just go for the real thing. She's like, you know what? After seeing that much death and coming so close to dying myself, screw it. I have other things to worry about. I don't blame her. Yeah, there's a line in Shortcuts, uh, the Robert Altman film, where Lily Tomlin is smoking cigarettes and her daughter, played by Lily Taylor, goes, Mom, you need to quit smoking. And she goes, I can't quit smoking with all this other stuff going on. And that's basically what I think is going on here. Well, thank you all for the emails. It means a lot to, to get feedback from our dedicated listeners. But now let's move on to our discussion of this week's episode. Today we're going to be discussing Season 2, Episode 4 of True Detective. The episode is titled Other Lives, and it was written by Nick Pizzolatto and directed by John Crowley, uh, who's done a few movies. He directed the movie Closed Circuit with Eric Bana and Rebecca Hall in 2013, and he's the director of the new film written by Nick Hornby, Brooklyn, which I believe comes out this year. I don't think it's already come out. I saw it at Sundance, and oh. it is wonderful. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I really enjoyed that film, and uh, Saoirse Ronan is getting Oscar buzz for her lead performance in that, and deservedly so. It's it's a lovely, lovely film. And um, another film he did that, that very few people have seen with Andrew Garfield is Boy A, which is about an 18-year-old who is released from prison after committing a crime as a kid that we are not sure if it was an accident or not, but he's basically trying to start a new life outside of Juvie, and it's a really haunting powerful film that everyone should check out. Okay, I'll put that on my list. But yeah, so the director of those films, John Crowley, directed this episode. And as a reminder, this is not a spoiler-free podcast. So if you haven't seen the episode, you should go watch it and then come back and listen because we will be getting into a lot of detail about what happened on the show. But before we begin, Charlie, why don't you go ahead and remind our listeners what happened this week on True Detective? It's been two months since the crazy shootout of the previous episode, and the Casper case is now officially closed. Ray is working as an enforcer for Frank, who's reconsidering adoption with Jordan and hoping to get back in on the railway deal. Paul is working insurance fraud and still planning his marriage to Emily. Ani discovers a link between the missing girl Vera and sex parties that were attended by Casper and high-powered politicians. By the end of the episode, Ray finds that his wife's rapist was recently caught. Annie and Paul discover a torture site in the woods of Guerneville, and the whole team is back together as a part of a confidential task force assigned to discover what's really going on behind the scenes of Vinci. All right, let's dive right into our discussion of Other Lives. We are privileged to be joined today by a very special guest. He is the former TV editor of the AV Club and the current culture editor of Vox.com, which, if you're listening and don't make a habit of visiting Vox, you absolutely should. It's a fantastic news outlet. He's a wonderful TV critic. His uh, apartment is filled with many leather-bound books and smells of rich mahogany. In short, he's kind of a big deal. Todd Vanderwerf, welcome to the show. Uh, it's it's good to be here, and my apartment mostly smells of cats, I'm afraid. <laughs> As does mine. Even better. <laughs> Even better. All right. Well, uh, well, Todd, I've been following your True Detective reviews over at Vox, and it seems like you've had kind of a mixed reaction to this season, like most people have. Could you go ahead and, ahead and just sum up for our listeners, what are your overall thoughts on season two so far? It's interesting because I feel like Every episode has been a little better than the last episode. Mm -hmm. Like, I can see a universe where I proclaim episode five a really good episode of TV. But every episode has also highlighted just how disengaged I am from the season. So as the show gets better constructed, my emotional response to it grows more and more detached. So it's like the two things are moving in completely opposite directions. Like, the quality is going up 
as my emotional uh, attachment is going down. So it's like this weird V shape that's heading off in two <laughs> directly different directions. Uh, but, you know, like I, I certainly can find a lot of things to praise about this season, but I think in some ways, and I was telling somebody who's been a defender of this season this earlier today, I think in some ways my reaction was set by that season premiere. I found the season premiere so bad and so utterly disconnected from anything resembling like actual human emotion that like I just never clicked with the characters in the way I was supposed to. And you really needed to click with them in that episode if the rest of the season was going to work. And since I didn't, I'm just kind of sitting here watching it and being like, that's kind of cool, but I don't, I don't, I don't give a shit. Yeah, it's, it's been interesting thinking back to how the season began. Um, I remember after watching the second episode, I found myself wondering, would people's reactions have been different if it had been a two-hour premiere and mm -hmm. it had just ended with Ray getting shot by the guy in the bird mask and it had kind of ended on that exciting note, would the reactions have been more positive or because all we saw was that first hour, is that really why people just haven't connected as much? Because there's, there's so much to this world and this corruption plot to set up it's really hard to do all that in an hour and still get people to connect with the characters. Yeah. I feel like the season has been structured so strangely, like just on a pure level of how you're going to tell this story. We started with all the character backstory, which is like, like rule number one of, of like bad writing is don't do that. You know? Mm -hmm. So we started with just telling us all of the characters histories. Then we had the crime and, like, the crime was not – you couldn't really tell what the stakes of the crime were. They didn't, like, lay in what the stakes of the crime are until the end of Episode 5, which is bizarre. Like, it's a really weird way to structure a story. And, like, I'm open to different story structures. I'm open to non-traditional narrative. But this just sort of feels like they took apart the pieces of a mystery story and reassembled them just at random. Yeah, I've been kind of, I've been really mixed on this season too. I mostly have not been a big fan of it. Like, I agree with you, Todd, the pilot I did not care for. Then episode two got me a little hooked again, and then I really hated episode three. And then last week's episode I liked the most out of all of them, and now this week I was extremely mixed on it. Didn't really care for it that much. But you wrote a great article um, that was published uh, today uh, titled True Detective Season 2, Episode 5. The show has made it so hard to care about this season. I connect to the point that you made so so well. It's that the show hasn't done a great job in terms of setting up stakes or doing a great job in terms of telling a compelling plot or giving you a reason to care about anyone. It's more based on the fact that you were on board for Season 1 Therefore, we don't really have to try as hard or like, you know, they'll be with it no matter what. It's true detective at this point. So I, I agree with everything you said in that article, because, uh, you know, I, I while I admire many aspects of this season, I really have a hard time giving a shit about anything. And uh, it's it's just murky storytelling to me. I don't. I consistently, maybe I'm just dumb, but I consistently forget about certain characters and don't know, like, they, you know, they're, they're, they spend so much time on certain plot elements, such as the adoption and Ray and his son, and then spend no time on aspects of the actual crime or who certain players are in it, that I have to keep looking up what character did what. And it's, it's trying to be a mixture of character uh, study and murder mystery, and I feel like by trying to be both, but by kind of meshing the two together awkwardly, it's not really doing a great job of either. Yeah, I think you're definitely right that the, the structure has hurt this season. I think that's 
especially true in the case of the character of Ray. I mean, we we've known ever since that premiere episode, Ray was probably set up. And now to have to wait five episodes to finally have it confirmed, it's one of those reveals that feels like it should be exciting, but it's not because we've just been waiting for it. We all knew it was going to happen. Yeah, there's there's two possibilities to the way they handled that reveal, and like neither is particularly flattering to the creative people behind the show. Like the first is that they really thought that we would be surprised by that notion, that we would be surprised by the thought that maybe the guy that Ray killed was not actually his wife's rapist. And the second is that they thought we would be so invested in Ray that at this point we would really want to see what he would do. But what he does is he goes to Frank's house and yells at him and like, we'll see the aftermath next week. But like, that's exactly what you'd expect pretty much anybody to do. So it's like neither of those things is inherently interesting enough to be carrying as much of the season as it has been. It's also so heavy handed when he meets Frank the first time, because I'm pretty sure that's the first time we meet Vince Vaughn. And I remember there was the big red tint as if we were in a Nicholas winning Reffin film, like only God forgives. And the symbolism of that scene alone is so heavy handed. It's as if Ray's making a deal with the devil. You know what I mean? And yeah. I feel like it kind of talks down to us at times. Like, it, it, it treats us like we're children that need to be told exactly what's going on. And in other times, it expects us to be smart enough to keep up with everything, but not really do a good job in terms of uh, making it very coherent. Yeah, and, and Todd, you wrote uh, another article basically saying that the fallout from the shootout in last week's episode really doesn't make up for everything that's come before. Do you feel like that big action set piece at the end of last week really was just a kind of an exercise in further wheel spinning? Yeah, I think, you know, a lot of people have compared it to the tracking shot from season one. Um, and I try not to go in for too many season one comparisons. For one thing, I think they're a little too easy. Uh, for another, they seem to really make people who like the show, like, they seem to really make them angry. So I try to, I try to, like, when I criticize this, the season criticizes it on its own merits. But that definitely felt like an attempt to one-up that sequence, but in largely incoherent ways. Now, if you think about, like, the, the tracking shot from season one, the bearing it has on the rest of the story is minimal. It's just, like, certainly there are elements there that play out, but it's mostly there to be cool. And, like, a lot of what season one was was an exercise in, like, external existential cool to the the detriment of actual, like, internal meaning. And that's fine. Like, I love cool shit. Like, I love to go and watch something really cool. And I, I feel like True Detective Season 1 handled that pretty well. But Season 2 has just become so completely devoid of meaning whatsoever that, like, you can have an action sequence like the one in Episode 4 that's functionally incoherent. Like, very little in it makes sense. The filmmaking is not particularly good. The, like, editing is not particularly coherent. And yet it just sort of, it, it's just sort of there to be a thing that happens that we will look at and be like, yeah, that was awesome. Like, that will hopefully keep us going. That's like, I feel like every single episode has just been, here's a big moment that will hopefully keep you going. And what's ironic is that it's the smallest moment of the season, the smallest cliffhanger, I guess you'd say so far, that actually makes me feel like, yeah, I want to see where this goes. And that's um, Annie and Paul finding, you know, that, that bloody shack up in the woods up, up by Guerneville. Um That is a moment where I'm like, okay, I sort of get what we're doing and I want to see how this turns out. We just haven't gotten there with the more over-the-top pyrotechnics. 
Yeah, it, it it does seem to me though that the the big shootout at the end of episode four was meant to be kind of a dividing line between the first half of the season and the second half of the season. You know, we've jumped ahead two months. This episode to me, other lives, it almost felt like a repeat of the premiere in the sense that once again it's just about getting our three leads back together again so that they Agreed. they can reteam up and go find the uh, the real killer this time. Um, so I, I, I think it's going to be interesting to see if the shootout has any lasting effects on them as, as people and as, as characters. Um, we've already seen that Annie is now smoking real cigarettes. She's giving up the, uh, the e-cigs. And I'm, I'm curious to see, like, how has this traumatic experience affected them, you know? And is that going to come back in any sort of meaningful way? Well, that was kind of my big complaint about this season, is it didn't really seem to affect anyone. I mean, why does this woman want to get those three back together? If anything, I feel like they should be kept apart. And, like, you know, from a professional standpoint, obviously not from a viewer standpoint, but, like, that, that, that was a catastrophe what went down. And they're calling it the Vinci Massacre, and clearly it's affected everyone, but they don't seem all that affected by it. There's not even, like, you know, for a show that's all about emoting... Apart from some things Rachel McAdams' character says, I felt like the characters just kind of brushed it off and were like, ah, well. Like, and, you know, I agree with you, Andrew. It felt like a repeat of the pilot, and a re- it felt very redundant. And these characters are kind of the same characters they always have been since the beginning. I mean, sure, there's some things that have happened. You know, they're kind of repeating the same tropes that they've been stuck with since the first uh, the, since the first episode. And, like... I liked some developments in this mystery. I agree with you, Todd. I think that the uh, bloody shack that they find is the most intriguing cliffhanger. Were you annoyed by the fact that it ended right before Colin Farrell and Vince Vaughn have a conversation? Yeah, because I don't really trust the show to have the the payout of that conversation be at all unexpected. Basically, and this is this is probably rehashing stuff you guys have already talked about, but when Colin Farrell survived with no, like apparent injury being gunned down, even with riot shells, like, you'd think that would have put him in the hospital for a week at least. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Like, when that happened, I suddenly realized there were not going to be consequences. So, like, I'm not particularly worried about the the after effect of that. I know it's going to be like they have a conversation, Frank somehow talks Ray down, etc. I would love to be wrong. I would love to, to end with, you know, like, Ray takes... Frank out back and throws him in the ravine or something. I don't know. But I know that's not going to happen. I know it's going to be like brooding tough guys staring at each other and saying uh, machismo-laden dialogue and like nothing of a real consequence will happen. Mm-hmm. Well, look, clearly Ray is a changed man. I mean, he shaved his mustache. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, speaking of all this, uh, this machismo Todd, uh, you wrote another piece for Vox a few weeks ago where you basically said that this season of True Detective is all about penis problems. Sure. <laughs> I kind of feel like that was a major theme of the first season, though, as well. Just this yeah. idea of masculinity and what does it mean to be a man. And it seems like it's one of those ideas that Nick Pizzolatto really wants to, to focus on. How do you feel it's being handled this season? Um, I actually, you know, I have no qualms with Pizzolatto wanting to talk about this. I think the place of masculine behavior in a world that rapidly has less room for it is an interesting theme and an interesting thing to talk about. Part of the reason True Detective for me, even in season one, has struggled to break past my, oh, this is cool, but I don't know what it means filter is 
so many great TV shows have been about this theme. Like The Sopranos is about that. Breaking Bad is about how are you a man in a world where, like, increasingly you feel like there's not room to be a man, a man with, you know, quotes around it. Um, you know, there, there are all these shows about that, and I felt like True Detective was riffing on those shows in interesting ways, but, like, never quite found its own atmosphere. And there are times when it seems like Pizzolatto is trying to say that these codes of masculinity and these codes of masculine behavior are ultimately flawed, and that, like, the way to be a true man or a true human being is to be true to yourself. Like, it really seems he's like he's forthrightly saying that with Paul, who's gay, but won't just, you know be a, a gay man in a world that for the most part is more welcoming to gay men than it has ever been in human history. You know, he's, he's sort of stuck himself in this closet. So it seems like there, you know, Pizzolatto saying like codes of masculinity are ultimately harmful, but at the same time, he seems to find them sort of attractive and sort of like, like essential. And like, they're the only ways you can survive. And we see that with, you know, the Ray character, especially, who, like, issues beatdowns to people and gets the information he needs, or or the Frank character, who seems to come more alive when he beats people up. So, yeah, it's, it's tough to say, because it feels like he's sending mixed messages. And it's not like mixed messages can't work in a theme like this, but it is definitely, like, it doesn't feel like he's quite aware that he's sending those mixed messages. I, I completely agree, because as much as I love what they're doing with uh, Rachel McAdams this season... And you pointed out greatly in your uh, piece this week about how Paul is the most extraneous character of the bunch. I at least appreciate that Nick Pizzolatto's trying to go in some more diverse directions, because I myself am a gay man, so I do find that interesting. And even though the world is much more accepting of uh, gay culture than it ever has been in history, it still is a problem that affects a lot of people, and... I do appreciate the Pizzolatto's at least going for that, but I agree. It's kind of Paul and Annie's storylines feel like contradictions to Vince Bond's because it really feels like, and Ray's, well, to a lesser extent, Ray's, because I feel like he is, he is putting Ray's feet to the fire a lot with uh, some of this drama. But at the same time, it does feel like he's getting off on some of what makes him so masculine. It, you know, I know we've said this a bunch of times, but I'll butt fuck your, you know, father's headless corpse with your mom. With, yeah, <laughs> I'll butt fuck your father with your mom's headless corpse on this goddamn lawn. The, you know, Vince Vaughn is uh, again the weakest part of the show for me, not just because it's the most monotonous and most convoluted, but because I really feel like he adores Frank's character, and I could really give less of a shit about him because he feels like every other gangster character we've seen before. And I think the show is best when it focuses on Rachel McAdams and Paul because. It's him kind of trying to react to criticisms, and even when it's unsuccessful, I can see at least he's trying to extend, uh, he's trying to do something different. He's trying to create something as a re in a reaction to some of his past criticisms, so I admire that. What do you think about the way that women are being portrayed on the show, uh, Todd? Because I love what they're doing with the Rachel McAdams character. At times it is very heavy-handed, especially in this uh, episode when she's in sexual... Uh, harassment meeting, but then you have a character like Kelly Riley, and it's all baby this, baby that, and she's not really a character, and at one point she even says, I don't want to be a gangster's wife, Frank, and I'm like, well, you're writing her as that Pitzlato, that's all she is, and all she does is give him, is kind of be a nag about baby problems, so I feel like it's two step, you know, one step forward, two steps back in some cases, but uh, what, do, what do you think about that? 
I like, like Annie is by far my favorite character this season. I'm most invested in her story. I think Rachel McAdams is giving the best performance, which I gather is a minority opinion, but I no, I it's, feel, it's my opinion too. Yeah. I, I feel, yeah, agree. I feel very strongly that that's the case. Um, I hope that even though this season has not been very well regarded, it, it does give her more opportunities, uh, because she's, she's, I think, been unfairly ignored by Hollywood in some cases. Absolutely. But it definitely feels like this, along with everything else, has been really incoherent. Like, certainly Annie is a, is a heavy-handed character. Certainly it is not the world's most original take on being a woman in a stereotypically masculine profession. It's also not, to remove it from gender entirely, it's also not the world's most original take on being a, a child raised by fairly... Uh, loose, liberal, free and easy parents, you know, reacting by becoming a very reactionary conservative in some ways. Um, not necessarily in the political labels of those words, but in the term, in like just in parenting philosophy, you know, so there's a lot of, there's a lot of baggage there in terms of we've heard this story so many times before, but I think that Annie is, is by far the, the show's best character. I think Rachel McAdams is giving a great performance. And then, yeah, you have something like Kelly Riley who, where it feels like Jordan is just, this sort of adjunct character to everybody else. Like she really feels like um, the Michelle Monaghan character from season one, where mm-hmm. you could make the argument that like this show is not about her and, you know, TV doesn't necessarily have to be about her. It can just be about these two guys or whatever, you know, all the arguments we had about her, but like the Kelly Riley character strongly suggests that Pizzolatto struggles to write women who are in more traditionally feminine roles without making them seem weak or cliched or just not worthy of his attention. And, like, I've read his books, so I know that he has written some very good uh, female characters, but, well, I've read his his novel Galveston. I shouldn't say books. I I think he has others that I haven't read. Uh, But So I know that he can create good female characters, but they're definitely, like, ruined by life and, and hurt by the abuses of their past and, like, you know, sort of stuck in, in these murky, dark places in their minds. And, like, I don't know if he can write a woman who has struggles and has problems but is not, you know, a per, a traditional crime fiction plot device. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because she feels exactly like that, just mm-hmm. like a plot device that consistently has to nag Frank out of whatever deals he's making and kind of say you're bad or you're losing yourself or I want a baby, which it is, is a big cliche for female characters of the genre. And so. I'm not, I'm not saying he has to, but I'm saying that he should probably recognize he struggles with that and stop trying. <laughs> well, yeah. uh, well, there's one female character we haven't talked about yet. And that is Paul's quote unquote mom. Uh, <laughs> Cynthia. He calls her Cynthia in this episode. And, you know, there's been this big question ever since that first scene with the two of them together about what exactly their relationship is. Because at one point in, in the first time they meet, he calls her mom, and then she, like, kind of says, implies that he doesn't need to do that. You know, we got a little bit more of her backstory this episode, but their their big encounter and his blowout where he gets all upset that she took his money, it didn't feel to me like it really provided any new insight into either of those characters. Oh, no, Andrew, it's a huge metaphor about staying in the closet for too long. <laughs> <laughs> if only he hadn't hidden it in the closet, everything would be okay. 
everything would be fine. Just uh, get a safety deposit box, man. <laughs> like, <laughs> you'll be fine. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. What, what do you make of this character, Todd? What do you think's going on there? Um, I think that, again, it's it's a character who's, you know, sort of ripped from the pages of lesser crime novels. Um, the overbearing mother, the cop who's got lots of demons related to his childhood or his sexuality or whatever, is a staple of the form to the degree that it's it's a cliche and it's a trope that, you know, in some ways is, is really unfortunate. So, like, it feels like um, another sort of half-baked idea that got thrown into this season. Like, so much of the problem with this season is things that are thrown in without really connecting to anything else. They're half thought through. They don't have, like, real arcs in mind. And, like, I can hear the people already who are saying, well, you haven't seen how it ends, so you can't know if they don't have arcs. But, like, an arc has to arc. And so far we have a bunch of, like, pretty steady lines that maybe will start jumping upward, but, like, doesn't that doesn't really forgive the fact that they've just sort of traveled along in place all season. Um, so it has all of these, these, these things that don't arc and are just kind of half there and are half formed. And like, they're all thrown in at once. There are too many of them. There's too much stuff going on, um, to the detriment of both character development and plot development. Like you can understand what's happening and you can understand what's going on, but like, you don't really want to, cause it's just like sort of forthrightly told to you. And the kicker is it just sort of assumes you're going to care because it's true detective and you've cared about it before. And like, Lots of TV shows have done that. Most TV shows that do that have characters that you already know and already care about so they can get away with it for a little while. True Detective doesn't have that this season, and that, I think, is why the backlash has been so vicious. If it was like um, a, a show, the show I've been comparing it to is season three of Hannibal, which has also had moments when it feels like it's just sort of coasting on your goodwill. But because we love Will Graham, we love Hannibal Lecter, like... We will coast for a while, and we'll just be like, this isn't quite working for me yet, but I love this show. True Detective doesn't get that buffer. Yeah, we've been comparing it to season three of Hannibal a lot, too, and I I kind of agree. I didn't love the—I wasn't absolutely in love with the first couple episodes of Hannibal this season. were a little too slow for me, but right now it's, like, becoming one of the best shows on television, uh, where it's at right now. I agree with you. There was an article that was written by Sam Adams that came out today that was, like— that was state uh, that's called stop comparing TV shows to novels. It's not a compliment. And he basically puts like, if you read an 800 page novel, you don't just coast through the first 600 pages and be like, well, that's really boring, but you can't <laughs> wait till see what happens in the last 200 pages. And he even says, I don't imagine even Nick Pizzolatto would be thrilled if the first seven episodes of true detective were greeted by polite silence. So I, I agree with you. It has to have an arc. The scene with Taylor Kitsch and Cynthia it was so crudely written, too. Like, I think she says you could have been a scrape job, and then he says he could, you know, like, well, you have a poisonous cooch or something. It was just very... That scene was written as if we'd known these characters all along, and I think this is only the second time we've seen Cynthia. So to just throw in the backstory of how she was a failed dancer and he ruined his career, I'm like, there's so much going on, as you said. I just don't care. Yeah, and it was interesting you bring up the, the dialogue Charlie, because that's something I've struggled with, too, this season, is, is how exactly to deal with some of the dialogue. And on the one hand, yes, a lot of it is over-the-top and kind of goofy. On the other hand, True Detective has always dealt in these tropes and, and different conventions of the crime genre. And in tackling this kind of pulpy, noir story this season, 
it makes sense to me that some of the dialogue would feel like they were ripped out of old, you know, paperback crime novels, like mm-hmm. from Raymond Chandler and, and Higgins and the like. I know in uh, in his book on on writing, Stephen King has a famous example from Higgins where he says, you know, it was darker than a carload of assholes. Yep. <laughs> and it's, it's, a, it's a goofy line, but totally appropriate for that kind of story. And so, you know, when Frank in this episode says, uh, you know, the enemy won't reveal itself, Raymond, stymies, stymies my retribution. It's like blue balls in your heart. <laughs> you know, to what extent is that pushing the the conventions too far? And to what extent is it just saying, hey... You know, that's how these detective stories often sound a lot of the time. People seem to be making a big deal out of a lot of the dialogue, and we've made fun of it a little bit here on the show, too. But to a certain extent, that's the nature of the subgenre, I think. I don't mind stylized dialogue. I think it's great. I love stylized dialogue. It's one of my favorite things in the world. Like, one of my favorite, like, probably my favorite show of all time is Deadwood, which has perhaps the most stylized dialogue in the history of television. So, like... I have no problems with this. I really think the problem is the actors can't hook into those lines. Like when you're going to do stylized dialogue, it takes a very particular voice. And it's like, it's almost impossible to tell sometimes which actors are going to have it. Like McConaughey certainly had it. And Mm -hmm. another thing I think that season one had that season two doesn't have is Woody Harrelson was there sort of calling McConaughey on his bullshit. Like there was definitely that tension between like, is what Russ says, you know, actually the way the world works or is it all pretentious bullshit? And like you had, you had Woody Harrelson there for the people like me who found it to be like pretentious bullshit that, you know, was, was college freshman level philosophizing. You don't really have that in season two. You also have actors who are not as up to the task as Matthew McConaughey was of like spinning these yarns. Like Vince Vaughn has gotten most of that, But Colin Farrell has gotten, you know, I think should be getting a little bit of it as well. He swallows a lot of pretty funny lines. He swallows a lot of dialogue. It's just, it's not working. And I think that to some degree, the search for big stars, capital B, capital S, really hurt this season in ways where if they had just thrown together a cast of, like, interesting character actors, they might be doing a lot better. That's an interesting point. I hadn't really thought about that, that that maybe maybe if they went smaller instead of bigger, maybe it would ultimately work out better. Yeah, that's and I just, you know, it it feels like I don't know what this show looks like if the two leads are like, I don't know, Stephen Tobolowski and like, <laughs> you know, uh, but yeah, like I, I, it definitely feels like they're kind of trapped by the expectation that they were going to be bigger and better than season one. And if you look at something like Fargo, which obviously I haven't seen season two, so it too could be a disaster. But they went and just cast a bunch of interesting actors. And, like, Mm -hmm. that, I think, is probably the approach that you need to take. Because every time you try to go big, you usually end up going home. Yeah, doesn't Fargo Season 2 have Kirsten Dunst and, um, oh, shoot, I'm forgetting his name. Well, like, Kirsten Dunst is the big name, which is interesting, because she hasn't been a big name in a while. But, like, you have uh, Patrick Wilson's in there. Uh, mm-hmm. Ted Danson is in there. Um, Ted Danson, that's yeah. what I was thinking it's, of. It's, yep. So it's like all of these people, it's a lot of people who've done a lot of TV. Uh, you got Kirsten Dunst, who's who's played in this region before with Drop Dead Gorgeous. So it's like a bunch of interesting people. And obviously the season, you know, it'll come down to the scripts. The season could fall apart. But it, just in terms of casting, I'm a little more fascinated by what they've done. Yeah, and it's interesting, too, because Vince Vaughn was hitting it really big about 10 years ago with Dodgeball and... Uh, 
you know, even, uh, you know, even back in like 2009, I think he was doing like movies like Couples Retreat and he was made, he was a big box office star. It's interesting to me that they thought, let's give him a comeback role, especially, I mean, this year, I don't know if you saw the wretched movie, uh, Unfinished Business, but, but like, it's just, he's kind of in this, uh, slump right now. And it's interesting to me that they decided to reach out to him because, while I agree, like, I love Rachel McAdams, and I don't think she's really had many roles like this, and they thought, let's take a gamble with Vince Vaughn, uh, there was nothing that really shouted out that Frank would be a good fit for Vince Vaughn. I think he does have good comic timing, I think he has a good personality, he clearly has, you know, if you watch Wedding Crashers or Dodgeball, there is that deadpan, uh, Vince Vaughniness that is kind of idiosyncratic, but for whatever reason, he's just awkward for me now, and I tried to give him a pass in previous episodes, but at this point, he's kind of playing every scene the exact same, and I don't think he has a great grasp on Nick Pizzolatto's dialogue. And I don't even think the dialogue's that good for his character. So, But it's interesting. You know, Rachel McAdams, I love her when she's either a romantic lead or I love her when she's being an ice queen like Mean Girls or Brian De Palma's Passion. But I can't really think of many roles where she's been had to be the tough, gritty lead in a position that is usually dominated uh, by men. And I think she's perfect here. So it's interesting to me how, I, I agree with you, there is a weird fascination to how some of these performances are, work better than others, despite typecasting or not. I think Colin Farrell, is, out of all of these people, is the one who's been in this role the most, I mean, going back to Miami Vice. And I do like his performance a lot. I, have, I, I do, even in the episode, even in this episode's predictable plot twist about Frank setting him up, even though I was completely underwhelmed, I appreciated how much heart and soul he put into uh, this his performance this week. I think it's interesting about what you say about Vince Vaughn because before Wedding Crashers in two thousand five, like he had done a lot of darker dramatic roles. You know, he broke through in Swingers, which is certainly a funny movie, but has a lot of um, has a lot of stuff in it that's a little that's a little darker, a little more dramatic, like. And just in terms of physicality, I think he's playing Frank really well. Like, you really do buy Frank's menace. I think it's just a, too much stuff for us to get past when it's Vince Vaughn, you know, and mm-hmm. we sort of know him best for comedy. It's too much to get past when he's also doing this sort of, you know, Ian McShane-style soliloquies or, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, has really twisty, complicated dialogue. Like, if Frank was a little more silent, a little more hulking, a little more of this season's Woody Harrelson, and if he wasn't carrying so much story baggage that has nothing to do with anything else, I think people would feel a lot better about that character and about his performance. Because, again, I think physically he's he's all there. I disagree a little bit that he's not important to the story. I, I, can, I can see how... Yes, his little subplot about wanting to go legit and everything with with him and Jordan and and whether to have a baby. Yes, that feels kind of superfluous. But I do think that Frank is kind of a more of a a window into the whole corruption conspiracy that's the foundation of the season essentially. And in this episode, we finally start to see the pieces and and how they all fit together and how you know Frank used to own a waste company that poisoned the land so that the price would go down. And then he, he sold that, and then he, that made the land cheaper, so now they could buy it, and now they're going to make huge profits off of it. And I, I do think that he serves an important purpose for the overall conspiracy. I'm just wondering, do we really need eight episodes to watch that 
that conspiracy unfold and to, to get to the bottom of it. And I feel like in many ways, this season is sort of dragging its heels and kind of putting the puzzle pieces together. I mean, all the pieces were in place within the first couple episodes. It's just a matter of putting them together. And it feels like there's a lot of time being wasted in that respect. Yeah, I agree. And um, this episode in particular made me think, Andrew and I have been comparing the this season a lot to uh, Chinatown and LA Confidential. And with these plot developments, it really seems like Nick Pizzolatto is trying to do some sort of, at least to me, grittier version of LA Confidential. And uh, it was a comment left on the uh, Atlantic's review for it. Um, one user put in like, does anyone else feel like this is almost too similar to LA Confidential? I mean, it's set in LA. It's got a highway expansion in a, or you got the railway instead of the highway expansion. It's three cops in different divisions teaming up. Uh, there's a prostitution ring of women who've undergone plastic surgery, the sex parties they're in are being used to blackmail government officials, and then there's a big shootout halfway through that concludes the story and then really doesn't. And at this point, I don't really think the plot, you know, the, the further the plot goes, a big problem with me this episode is I was consistently thinking I've seen this before, I've seen this before, and then reading this comment, I was like, oh yeah, this is L.A. Confidential, written by Nick Pizzolatto. The meshing of character study and murder mystery or crime epic is really awkward this season, and I think maybe it's because both Woody Harrelson and Matthew McConaughey gave better performances, and there were also, those were only two protagonists, here we're stuck with four, that it just feels like he's trying to juggle too much that he can't fully flesh out. Yeah, um, I, I think, you know, I've read a lot of commentary on how similar uh, this season is to the novels of James Elroy, which uh, LA Confidential was a James Elroy novel. Like, mm -hmm. um, certainly, I feel like each season of True Detective is a tribute to a different subgenre of crime fiction. You know, if season one was spooky, southern gothic, weird fiction mashup, this is a California noir, and that's fine. Like, California noir is a great genre. But. Yeah, it's very much paint by numbers, very much like follow the rules to a T, and it, you know, it's a little boring. I, I wish that I was a little more surprised by what was happening. Well, that just brings up the question of, you know, to what extent are these quote unquote problems with this season? To what extent are they just inherent parts of the subgenre of, of this California noir conspiracy? Because, um, when you're dealing with stories like Chinatown or L.A. Confidential, I feel like in many ways these these stories about corruption are by their very nature very, very cold at times and more just about kind of putting the pieces together as opposed to really examining the characters. And so I, I wonder if maybe the the issues that this season has are really just due to that, that subgenre and the fact that it's no longer a Southern Gothic mystery. It's more of this... Uh, old-fashioned conspiracy tale? Um, I, I don't think so. Like, uh, I don't know. Like, I feel like Chinatown, L.A. Confidential, another California noir, which I never tire of pointing out, is who's, fr who's Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Um, <laughs> like, I feel like those are all... Those all have pretty fascinating characters. They have pretty fascinating ways. One of sort of the tenets, and I wrote a little bit about this at Vox, one of the tenets of... The California noir subgenre is, you know, it's very much about man's hubris, about man's thought that it, that we can sort of tame nature and turn it to our will, which, like, I, I live in California. I'm looking at the drought right now. So, like, certainly we're, we're not 
you know, we're not always accurate in that. So that's sort of a, a part of the subgenre. And like, that is something that Chinatown, LA Confidential, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, all tap into that True Detective so far hasn't. And then it usually externalizes those forces in the form of characters. Like, um, you know, the classic one in Chinatown is the way that the villain has sort of both perverted the land and perverted his home by, you know, sleeping with his daughter. We just don't have that in True Detective yet. We have hints of it. We have glimmers of it. But it doesn't feel – it feels like it's capturing the surface of what made these stories work, but not the core. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, one of my favorite films from last year, and it actually took me two times to, it took me two viewings to see it in order to fully appreciate its uh, brilliance was actually Inherent Vice, Paul Thomas Anderson's Inherent Vice, which was based on a novel by um, Thomas Pynchon. I did not read the Thomas Pynchon novel, but that also played with tropes involving masculinity, particularly with the Josh Brolin character. And while it's certainly a more darkly comic take on uh, California noir than True Detective is aiming for, I feel like they, they made Josh Brolin's character, who was who could have been such a cliche, into someone really sympathetic, because he is, he is in some ways kind of like the Colin Farrell character in that he's trying to gain respect and walks around like he's a man, like, and, and, and you know, is not getting that, is like, in a bad relationship with his wife, uh, and obviously, Inherent Vice is very much more of a dark comedy than True Detective, but I do think there are ways to subvert noir tropes, especially California noir tropes, into something really original, because Inherent Vice also is a film that has a lot of uh, elements that I complained about and still complain about with this season of True Detective, because characters do kind of come in and out of nowhere. Sometimes you'll only see one character uh, for a scene, but I'll feel like I'll get a good hint as to who they are. And on top of that, Joaquin Phoenix is stoned the entire time, which makes you, uh, <laughs> like, like you know, he has a hard time keeping up with it. So it's kind of, uh, and, and the cinematography is just beautiful in paying a homage to Robert Altman's other great California noir, The Long Goodbye. And obviously, I'm not trying to say, these, this is like comparing apples and oranges, but I'm just saying that there are, there is room to create an original California noir without just simply reverting to stereotypical tropes that we've seen before. Have you, either of you seen the uh, Inherent Vice? Yeah, I lo- like, what's funny is True Detective Season 2 is making me appreciate what Inherent Vice did so much more. Like, I saw mm-hmm. it and was like, that was pretty good, and now I'm just like, I'm sort of antsy to see it again, because I thought, I think, like, what it was doing was kind of brilliant in some ways. Um, another one I want to mention is David Fincher's movie Zodiac, which is not mm. quite oh, yes. not quite in that genre, but close enough that I feel like we can talk about it. It is set in California, after all. Mm-hmm. Um, but, like, <laughs> one of the things that these have in common is that they all sort of become about obsession, about the idea of, like, solving this case, even though it's going to put the detective at extreme risk to their own their own life, their own health, their whatever, their own whatever. And, like, that's true of even, like, uh, the Joaquin Phoenix character in, uh, in Inherent Vice, where he's a stoner, but, yeah, he really wants to solve this thing, and it, it puts him in great danger. And, like, I haven't really f- felt that with True Detective. Um, mm-hmm. And I think one of the things, now that now I just sort of have this brainstorm, is maybe the noir genre in general is not suited to television, is not suited to long-form storytelling. Like, maybe there is a cap on how long you can tell that story of, like, about 90 to 180 minutes that, like, that story makes sense. Um, the closest I can think of of a TV show that actually pulled off like a long form noir is maybe Top of the Lake, 
which is like I love that show. I yeah. which is like agree. not quite noir, but close enough that I think we can get away with calling it that. Um, but yeah, mm-hmm. I like that. But that has a lot of thematic depth to it that True Detective season two just doesn't. It's like I, I wonder if noir isn't like horror, and there's so much there that needs to be compressed that it works better up on uh, on the big screen. Well, well, it's interesting. All these all these examples that we're bringing up, you know, of these films, they're directed by people like. David Fincher and Paul Thomas Anderson. I mean, these are people who are are known as "quote unquote" auteurs. And I guess you could argue that Nick Pizzolatto is the defining auteur and the uh, authorial voice behind True Detective. But Todd, do you feel like this season is is missing anything by not having one single director like Kerry Fukunaga? last season yeah i i do and like this is one of those things where i've seen a lot of people say well if it was if it was carrie fukunaga people would be like oh wow this is great it could be the exact same thing but i don't know that he would bring the exact same thing one of the things i do with how i write my recaps is i do a lot of screen capping Mm -hmm. and what i realized as i was going through episode five is how generic the direction was and I don't yeah. want to like say you know bad things about the director or whatever because I'm sure he had a rush schedule or whatever. But it certainly was. I was watching these scenes and it was it could have been any TV show. It could have been literally any crime procedural. It was like over the shoulder shots of the characters talking to each other, cutting between reactions and speaking. You know, especially in the two person scenes. Whereas season one, you know, Fukunaga shot a lot of stuff in in, in long shots. Um, he shot a lot of stuff in. Uh, kind of like very, he would hold on weird things, especially like when, when Rust was talking or when Marty was talking. Um, and I think of some shots from that season that like, I still like at uh, the end of episode five where Rust is in, I think it's an abandoned school. And like, he pulls out the weird little twig man and the camera pulls back from him. And there's a single beam of light falling down upon him. Like that is a beautiful evocative image and so evocative of what the character was going through and what the show was going through. Or, um, you know, holding on the taillight that's still broken, completely improbably that's still broken after their big fight. Like, <laughs> we haven't had those moments in season one, or in season two, rather. Like, there's been, there was some nice stuff in the opening episode from Justin Lin. Uh, some of the overhead shots of the freeway are, are vaguely, you know, kind of there. But mostly it's just been very generic by the numbers TV direction. I agree. And I, as we were mentioning before, this was directed by John Crowley. And I just saw his film Brooklyn at Sundance. And it's a beautiful looking film. I mean, the cinematography is gorgeous. The colors pop. It, he knows how to frame certain shots. And it just kind of feels like like they're, I, I agree. Maybe there's the time schedule that they're rushing. Each scene with Frank and his wife feels the same to me, where it's close up, close up, close up, frame of both of them cut. And then in this episode, I'm not even sure what scene they cut to, but there was, like, a scene of them talking in a room, and then it cuts to another scene, and then it cuts right back to them, like, two minutes later, and I was like, (laughs) what? Like, you couldn't finish that off? And, like, it was just very strange. And I agree, as Andrew brought up, the, you know, David Fincher and Paul Thomas Anderson are auteurs, and another thing, going back to Top of the Lake, that was a Jane Campion miniseries, and Jane Campion is a brilliant director who's tackled lots of feminist themes. I, I remember watching Top of the Lake after season one of True Detective and loving it so much more because I feel like Jane Campion was taking a lot of mystery noir tropes and applying feminist themes to them. I mean, I agree, even, the, you know, these these episodes, I while Justin Lin did some nice things, and I don't think the shootout was as clunky as some people 
uh, have stated uh, last week, I do feel like it could be one voice. And I remember one of our concerns, Andrew, was we were afraid it was going to feel disjointed in terms of directorial styles. I really could not tell you that it was directed by whoever it's directed by whatever week. I I doubt that people are even picking up on it. People who aren't film and television enthusiasts like uh, us three probably don't even care. I I feel like Nick Pizzolatto isn't really putting that as a priority either. And that's something that I think is really necessary for a story like this. You you know, Paul Thomas Anderson and uh, Robert Altman and David Fincher and Jane Campion all have very distinctive visual styles and uh, cinematic voices that make these stories uh, gripping in their own in their own sense, and I feel like Nick Pizzolatto is just not strong enough of a writer to grip me through it all this muckety muck at the end. Well, it definitely feels in some ways like the show is trying to be very different from season one, but then in other ways it feels like this season is is trying to mirror season one, whether it's by having this big action scene at the end of the fourth episode or or having a, a, a time jump every now and then. And it it doesn't quite seem to know how to exist in relationship to the first season. Like, for example, I I heard one interview with a a location scout for this season who said that originally that chase scene at the end of episode three uh, with Colin Farrell and and Rachel McAdams, originally that was supposed to be all done in one take as well. Oh, I did not know that. And it was supposed to be kind of a mirror to the same chase uh, uh, from season one where they, you know, they start out, they go over a fence, and then they go through uh, just the architecture was supposed to be very similar. And then they ended up not doing it that way. So I, I kind of feel like Nick Pizzolatto, <laughs> in some ways he wants to establish some recurring themes and some recurring motifs, and in other ways it kind of feels like he's trying to make this season its own unique thing. And it gets kind of messy where, where those two lines of thought intersect. Todd, before we uh, wrap up, do you have any other thoughts about specific things in this fifth episode? Anything that you want to comment on? Any character moments? Any plot threads? Anything you found interesting in in this episode? I just find the way they keep saying hooker parties like it's like a 1950s <laughs> show, like very strange. Like, what are you, you going to do about these hooker parties? It's just like, I mean, can't we just say they're, you know parties with i don't know yeah how, how would you phrase it Tom? <laughs> <laughs> like if there's parties with very rich and powerful men you can assume a certain element of crime will be present it's just like i don't know it, hooker parties is just such a dumb phrase it seems like what, what's wrong with sex parties oh yeah yeah <laughs> yeah you know like hooker parties adds like a layer of sexism to me that just feels and even sleazier and don't get me wrong i know that most of those women are prostitutes, right? I mean, that was another thing. I was like, are most of these women prostitutes? Or are they in- they're involved in sex trafficking, right? That's what the whole plastic surgery thing that's going on, I assume. Well, I mean, I assume that there's some some form of human trafficking going on, which is why we get so many shots of the, the highway system, because it's traffic. <laughs> <laughs> I do feel like we're going to um, – I may be forgetting something here, so correct me if I'm wrong, and, and I probably am greatly wrong but i do feel like we're going to find out that that missing girl everybody's after is like vera yeah you know the one that 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 uh, annie and her old partner uh are after like like that's going to end up obviously that's going to end up bearing on the case as a whole but i think we're going to like end up finding her at one of these or knowing she was part of that sex trafficking ring in some way 
Well, I have a theory that uh, Vera and Tasha might be the same person. And even if they aren't, I think one of them could potentially be our our character in the bird mask. So you think it might take like a attempt you think that Nick Pizzolatto might take an attempt at vertigo, like with the whole plastic surgery, now she's the same person type of thing. Like Maybe I, so. Maybe so. But I definitely think I I I think one of those two women is probably behind the bird mask. That is my my theory. Well that's the other thing is like not only do I not know who's behind the bird mask because i feel like there's been so few breadcrumbs but i just have no interest in like figuring out going back and looking for breadcrumbs at this point in terms Mm. of who's behind the bird mask uh what do you think todd um i hope it's rick springfield i hope rick springfield is behind everything (laughs) after what ray did to him this episode he might have to wear that bird mask for a long time i i I am really enjoying his performance i won't lie he's so terrible and sleazy and I, i i love it so much um, I, I do think, uh, I don't know, I do think, I realize it's a convention of the genre, but I think that when you stretch it out, this genre, as long as this, it makes the fact that everything is connected feel all the more contrived. Mm-hmm. Like, the fact that the case Annie started out investigating in that first episode is connected to the big case that we've been investigating the rest of the season is ludicrous. It's absolutely crazy. <laughs> um, and I, I feel like the show has not done the necessary legwork you have to do on television of underlining how it is indeed ludicrous. Oh, yeah. There's just, there's just so many coincidences that have to occur for for a plot like this to make sense. You know, they, they all three of them just happen to survive the shootout, and they all just happen to be put back on the case. And, you know, so many so many things just have to go down a certain way for this all to add up. And on the one hand, it's kind of annoying, but on another hand, it's also kind of enjoyable just to kind of see how they make it work. I'm, I'm going to politely disagree and say that I think that it's a little tonally jarring because I feel like there are times where Pizzolatto acknowledges this is pulp and then other times where he wants you to take it completely seriously. And I feel like um, there are contrivances I'll buy, like everybody surviving the shootout because... You know, if somebody mm-hmm. did, like, I, I, if we theorize that this is some other universe where this is all really happening, if somebody else had survived that shootout, then the story would be about them. You know, does that make sense? Like, the reason yep. the story is about these characters is because, to some degree, they survived the shootout. But, like, yeah, then the fact that all of these other things tie in is just, it's, like, all of California, apparently, is involved in this weird criminal conspiracy to kill a city manager. Like, <laughs> it, it, it beggars belief. Yeah. Do you think that Nick Pizzolatto felt pressured to expand the story in terms of, like, I need to connect all of these things? Like, I need to, you know, I don't want people to criticize me for it being thematically thin because of the disappointing conclusion of the first season. I need to make it about all of these problems because I feel like he's just, as I said before, kind of reaching for a lot and then, as a result, not really developing anything as a result. Well, you know, he said at one time this was going to be about the secret occult history of the tra- U.S. transportation system, um, which really panned out well for all of us. <laughs> but I think that he, yeah, I think he has really tried to respond to all of season one's criticisms to the show's detriment. I think that he feels he's in a conversation with critics in a way that, like, critics don't necessarily feel they're in a conversation with him. And it, it, it always hurts shows when when showrunners attempt to respond to their critics. Like, there are certainly cases where 
the outcry is so huge and so major that, you know, there has to be a course correction, but they're very rare. Like, you don't see the Game of Thrones people, like, ceasing to have rape on that show, as much criticism as there's been of that choice. Like, that is a thing that they're sticking to. I think Pizzolatto dug himself into a hole when he started trying to respond to criticisms, and now, like, he's just sort of made even more for himself. That could be true. That could be true. He also said that he uh, he modeled this season somewhat after Oedipus Rex, which I find interesting. Um, and I can definitely see some, some references to Oedipus Rex in this season. But structurally, I definitely feel like Oedipus Rex is far more interesting, unless the person that Ray killed turns out to somehow be related to another major character. I'm, I'm not sure structurally it's going to be anywhere as interesting as, as Oedipus Rex. Well, Oedipus Rex was also much better written. I mean, they teach it in <laughs> high school English, as you do, Andrew, I'm sure. Right. Yes. Todd, um, there's been a lot of comparisons to David Lynch, and one of my complaints is that this show is so tonally not on the same level as David Lynch, and... Even though one of the most interesting aspects of this episode is the plot development involving the Bloody Shack, which could be like, you know, the Black Lodge to some people. Do you see a lot of David Lynch influences here? And do you think they mesh well with the grim uh, grittiness of uh, everything else going on? I think Nick Pizzolatto would love to be David Lynch. (laughs) I think he lacks David Lynch's fleetness, for lack of a better word. David Lynch is very good. He's very good at at blending tones. He's very good at dancing between tones. There are a few movies as tonally complex as Mulholland Drive. Like one of my absolute favorites. Just to, I mean, uh, you know, like there are a few movies as good as Mulholland Drive in the history of film. So, like, you know, that that's kind that's kind of like (laughs) an unfair comparison to draw for for anything for even like some of David Lynch's other work. But, but at the same time, if he's calling attention to it, don't you think it's fair that we? Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Put his I feet think it's fair. I, I I think it's definitely fair. I think that there have only been a couple of scenes this season that have matched up to some Lynch, for some of what Lynch has done, and crucially, they seem to really play into Pizzolatto's wheelhouse, like the uh, weird bar in the afterlife that Colin Farrell finds himself in at the start of episode three. Like that's definitely an overt Twin Peaks homage. But it's filled mm-hmm. with the kind of weird, dreamlike doublespeak and weird fiction overtones that made so much of season one so arresting. Like, mm-hmm. I feel like the way that Pizzolatto gets at David Lynch is by traveling via H.P. Lovecraft. And I think he's trying to make the route more direct, and it's just, it's just making the comparison all the more, um, more hard to bear. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you. All right, Charlie, any final thoughts on this episode or the season as a whole? Well, I'll quote Mike Ryan, his tweet. (laughs) True Detective's only three episodes left tag should probably be changed to, yeah, there are still three left. You can do it! (laughs) Well, Todd, we've been been talking for, for around an hour now. Do you have any final thoughts or final comments on this episode or True Detective as a whole? Uh, uh, turn off your, your listeners if you don't want to hear what's happening the next week on. Next week involves, apparently, Annie getting dressed up to go pretend to be uh, a call girl at one of the hooker parties. So we all have that to look forward to. I unfortunately did not catch the next on True Detective thing. Is she dressed up like in scantily clad clothing or she no she's a, she she's in evening wear but it's it, you know it's revealing evening wear it's um yeah it's 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 a grammy dress it's not an oscar dress <laughs> well uh 
they they announced before the season aired that there was going to be a big orgy scene. So I've been expecting that to happen at some point. We're gonna, we're, there's gonna be a big orgy. So the only question is, how involved is Annie gonna get? It's it's gonna be uh, eyes wide shut level, I'm sure. I mean, <laughs> yeah, like, who knows? Uh, this could be her chance to to fulfill those kinky sexual desires that she she may or may not have. That they've kind of been been hinting at. So we'll have to wait and see. But I think that'll wrap it up for this episode of Detect This. We'd love to get your feedback on the show. Don't forget you can call and leave us a voicemail at 336-793-2509. And you can email us at detectthis at filmgeekradio.com or comment on the website at filmgeekradio.com. You can also subscribe to us through iTunes and Stitcher. So if you liked this episode, please write us a review. That would really help us get the word out about the program. And you can also donate to us through the website. Just go to filmgeekradio.com and click the support tab and the donate button. You can also visit any of our affiliates, including Amazon. And if you navigate to our affiliates through our website, we will get a couple pennies of whatever you purchase. And every little bit helps. So we really appreciate it. Uh, Todd, thank you so much for joining us on today's show. Where can people find more of you and your work? You could uh, find me on Vox.com. Uh, my writing is in the culture section, which is Vox.com slash culture. Um, and you can also find me on Twitter at Twitter.com slash TVOTI. I have a podcast that's been dormant for over a year, but my wife and I swear to God we're going to pick it up again at some point, and that's at TVOTI.net. And, and real quick, Todd, I know Vox is a relatively new outlet. It's only been around for a little over a year. Can can you can you give people the quick little elevator pitch on what's so cool about Vox? Because I I really love the site. As do I. Well, thank you so much. Vox is an attempt to explain the news and the world around you uh, in a format that is not condescending and in a format that is uh, you know really easy to understand and really will help you understand the news. Like our our. Our tagline is explain the news. And while it may seem weird that I mostly write about television and film there, like we really try to place this stuff in a context that even if you know nothing about the topic at hand, you will leave having learned something and understanding the world and the culture a little bit better. Yeah, I love it. It's absolutely uh, fantastic. Charlie, where can people find you online? Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at ctnash91. That's ctnash91. You can also find work that I've written for various sites, including moviemezzanine.com, edgeonthenet.com, allthingshorror.com, and cinematicessential.com. And yes, thank you so much for coming on, Todd. It was an absolute honor, and I am so flattered to be in your podcast presence. So <laughs> It's been a lot of fun. You can follow me on Twitter and Letterboxd at WriterAndrew. If you do follow me, be sure to send me a message. Let me know you're a listener so I can follow you back. That'll wrap it up for this episode. I'm Andrew Johnson. I'm Charlie Nash. And I've still got blue balls in my heart. This has been a Film Geek Radio production. Film Geek Radio! Yeah!